Get ready for the greatest roast of all time. The Roast of Tom Brady. A Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hi, this is Josh Levine, and this is Slate's Sports Podcast Hang Up and Listen for the week of January 22nd, 2018. On this week's show, we'll talk about the New England Patriots' latest comeback to make it to their latest Super Bowl, and the Philadelphia Eagles' blowout win over the Minnesota Vikings, getting them back to the title game for the first time since they lost to the Patriots in 2005. We'll also be joined by Juliette McCurr of the New York Times to discuss the powerful courtroom testimonials from Allie Raceman and others who are abused by gymnastics doctor Larry Nasser, and what the future holds for those at USA Gymnastics and Michigan State who helped abet Nasser's crimes. Finally, Deadspin's Dave McKenna will be here to memorialize Gary Mays, the one-armed Washington, D.C. sports legend who shut down Hall of Famer Elgin Baylor on the basketball court. Joining me in Washington, D.C. is Stefan Fatsis, author of the books Word Freak and A Few Seconds of Panic. Hello, Stefan. Hello, Josh. How are you feeling today? Great. Feeling good. Weekend of sports. <laughs> Generic sports comment. Uh, was this weekend a particular weekend of sports? No, but when you sort of like the two NFL games back to back, and then I stayed up and watched some tennis while I did some reading for this podcast and took some notes. It feels like a lot of sports in a row. Yeah, it is a lot of sports in a row. Should we talk about sports? Sure. Or do you need a break? No, no, no. After the sports Might weekend. as well at this yeah. point. We've, yeah. we've put in sunk costs, yeah. they say. Uh, on Sunday in Foxborough, Mass., the New England Patriots fell behind 14 to 3 and 20 to 10 to the feisty Jacksonville Jaguars. Uh, Jaguars? What's the Tony Romo? Tony Romo. Tony Romo went with Jaguars, which is the fifth pronunciation in Merriam Webster. So I'm down with Tony on Blake, Jaguars. Blake Bortles was going nuclear for the Jaguars uh, in that first half. They're up 14 3, they're up 20 to 10. And then inevitably, the Patriots came back. Tom Brady, who was playing with a bandage on his right hand due to a cut he suffered in practice during the week. He nearly died. Um, completed a third and 18 pass to Danny Amendola to keep one drive alive. He then threw a touchdown pass to Danny Amendola with 8.44 to go to cut the lead to three. He then threw another touchdown pass to Danny Amendola with 2.48 left to win the game. It's the seventh straight AFC title game they'd played in by the way, and uh, they won by the score of 24 to 20, sending the Patriots to their 10th Super Bowl, giving them a chance to win their sixth, which would tie the Pittsburgh Steelers for the most ever. A lot Uh, of numbers. A lot of numbers. How are you feeling about the Patriots today, Stefan? Um, They benefited from some officiating. (laughs) Okay. Tom Brady looked old at times, but great also. Very ungenerous. I like it. Happy for Amendola. My neighbors growing up were the Amendolas, so I'm happy for all Amendolas. (laughs) Yeah. This morning. Do you think that Danny Amendola's has a funny name? No. Not funny. No, not Just funny. a normal, normal name. Normal, name. normal human name. Um, eighth Super Bowl for Brady. 
the most ever if you want some more numbers. Out of 16 seasons. That's pretty good. Could, could win his sixth, which would pass Charles Haley, most uh, first single player. Could make the Hall of Fame, that guy. He could. Um, I feel like CBS's coverage of the hand was actually pretty good. Like Richard Deitch ran through it. I didn't watch the pregame shows just because that's a life choice I made many years ago. But he ran through like they had Tony Romo watching the warmups and, mm-hmm. so, you know, his throws had a little more sail to them. But he looked like maybe 90 percent. And they were showing they had the shots during the game of like the bandage and the glue that they were using. I was like. I was into That's it. Fine. I was into it. No, no, no. That kind of coverage. Rich Eisen had some great Zapruder type footage of uh, Brady walking into the stadium with his hands in his pockets, and they compared video of him on other weekends walking into the stadium where he normally carries a briefcase because you need a briefcase <laughs> when you're to, when you're going right. to get ready for the game. Business trip. Business trip. Yeah, he's all business. But that was a legit storyline going into the and game. And really interesting. It's the kind of things that it's the kind of story that. That, that is interesting and compelling to an audience. You know, when you slice up your thumb, your palm, it looked like it was his palm. I think, yeah. there was, I think there was some footage afterward of you could see the cut yeah. and where the stitches were. I mean, that is CGI. a legitimate impact on an athlete's ability to play. That was interesting. <laughs> One would think, yeah, yeah, if you have a big gash on your hand, it might make it harder to yeah. throw the football. That's yeah. good analysis. Um, so He must have gotten shot up with some painkillers too, though. All that I was thinking about in both games, and we'll get to Eagles-Vikings in a bit, was um, how much of what we were seeing was the players and how much of it was the schemes and the coaching. And there was a lot of talk, again, which was a cliche, but I think it was totally true in this game, that the Patriots are really good at making halftime adjustments. And in the first half, when Blake Bortles, the immortal Blake Bortles, um, was looking immortal— it wasn't like he was making like these amazing throws into tight windows. He was like screening the ball to the, you know, halfback Grant, who had just like 20 yards of space in front of him. He was just throwing these little dink throws. Uh, and, and some downfield throws that were not bad throws. They were good throws no. into not into super tight coverage, but they were good throws that clearly reflected good play design. Good, Really good play design, really good coaching. Um, the Jaguars had um, – a good game plan, it seems. And seemed. then? And then? Well, and then, I mean, I think the and then started with with 55 seconds to go in the first half when they decided to take a knee instead of trying to gain 40 yards and maybe kick a field goal. Yeah. Um, there, something changed in the the Jaguars' decision-making. They became more conservative, and it was obvious. I thought and you were going to say the, the game changed when it was 14-3, to three and the Jags got that incredibly bogus pass interference yeah. call. Well, um, I'm, and I'm, you know, I think that... I don't want to go tinfoil hat on Patriots and, and only one penalties. penalty for ten yards, lowest in a championship game since fourteen ninety two. Right, and, and and some clear holding calls and the pass interference call against the Jaguars was terrible against Bouye later in the game that led to the the go ahead touchdown. Um, where were we? Oh, <laughs> you don't want to go tinfoil hat. I don't want to go tinfoil hat because those things do happen. In games, I mean, for all of the technology and instant replay, refs still fuck up. And whether we believe that they are 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 subconsciously biased in favor of 
Tom Brady, you know, we saw the refs patting him on the chest after the game and congratulations. Another ref seemed to be smiling in celebration. Before uh, we move on, I, before, I, I'm, I'm down with you're not being a tinfoil hat wearer. While laying that's, out that's all fine. of the tinfoil hat yeah, yeah. possibilities. But defensive pass interference is a problem. It's oh. a pro- it is a problem in the NFL that like those plays like swing games all the damn time. It's just like too punitive. Like, it's too punitive. They're not clear. There is contact constantly. That's the problem. You players. can you cannot have a fifty yard penalty or like a forty something yard penalty on a play that's just gets called incorrectly. Ten yards. So many times. Down. Like if you're gonna pen, if you're gonna penalize a team that severely, it needs to be like absolutely goddamn clear that they prevented like a clear goal scoring opportunity would be the analogy. It's like it's not a red card, but it's like a touch it's it's can be an automatic touchdown in a lot of cases. That's just too severe a penalty. Absolutely. It needs to be 15 yards. Yes. Um but what I was thinking with Pats and Jags is like on the one hand, Brady is obviously an amazing player. They've got a bunch of great talent, but with players like Miles Jack, Jalen Ramsey, Leonard Fournette, like I'm sure that Doug Marone and the and the Jags coordinators are really good. It seemed like they had a really good, um, you know, game plan on on both sides. But this is a really player driven team, and I think the, you know, the way that they've transformed themselves, both in terms of on field ability and in terms of attitude, like they talk so much shit, like on that defense, like Ramsey. And I think Fournette, to some degree, on offense, just completely changed how that team perceives itself and how the world perceives it. I mean, these are the Jaguars. They're laughing. They've been a laughing stock. And it just shows how, in a year or two, with some good drafts and some players who have you know a lot of personality, you can totally change the perception of your franchise. And then on the other side, the Patriots have a totally different model, right? It's entirely like a management-driven mm-hmm. coach driven team and that contrast was really fascinating to watch and i don't think the management driven coach driven team will always win but when you have that plus the best quarterback it's a pretty good combo yeah when you have an incredible manager and an incredible coach um and an incredible player you are more likely to win i mean most nfl teams are like that they are bureaucracies. They are patriarchal. They are top-down. Um, you don't often see the kind of personality that you're describing. And whether that's true, Josh, we don't really know. I mean, whether the Jaguars enable their players to have that kind of freedom and exhibit that kind of freedom on defense in terms of how they set up and what they're doing, we don't really know. I mean, how much different is it from a typical defense that is told exactly what to do and what scheme to be in at every given time? But it sure seems that way, and they're allowed at least to articulate their personality, which as you correctly point out, goes a long way to not only changing the impression of the franchise with your own fan base and around the league, but creates a different kind of culture inside the team, which is beneficial as it obviously proved to be in the case of the Jags. And I'm not going to give credit to the NFL because the fact that they like relaxed the celebration um, and sportsmanship rules this year, I mean, it obvi- the rule shouldn't have been in place in the first place. So like, I'm not going to congratulate them, but it's it's generally been thought of this year as like, oh, end zone celebrations. Those are fun. But you've seen it like with the Eagles defense, the Saints defense, the Vikings defense, the Jaguars defense. Like they're like the swagger that those um those teams have shown, I think is also a consequence of those rules 
being relaxed, like the posing after turnovers um, and and all manner of, of other stuff. I think it's been really great for the league. Right. Given and how think, bad everything else is in the league and how many things we can point to that are terrible about the NFL, you know, giving the players the freedom to enjoy their jobs. Yeah, that's a positive. Well, but I, I was also going to say, like, generally fun football equals offense scoring. And I think that that's been kind of like a written. Yeah. It has been rewritten a little bit, and I think that's important for the league, for, like, strong defensive teams to be seen as, like, fun and entertaining and interesting to watch. Right, and um, I think I think the Jaguars, though, might have benefited had their patriarchal brain trust on the offensive side of the game put a little more trust in, in, in Blake Bortles and the offense to do what had succeeded in the almost the entire first half in the second half. I mean, they became so conservative running Fournette up the middle or just off of uh, the guard and it didn't work. They became cautious. Um, And yeah, environment, Foxborough, Brady, the knowledge that you're winning by only a couple of scores and that is not a huge advantage against the New England Patriots. Those weigh on a team's um, operating instincts. Um, But I think it, it really obviously hurt them. Um, so there, there are a bunch of other things we can talk about. Um, Gronkowski going out in the first half on a helmet to helmet head. We've talked quasi helmet to helmet, but yeah, I mean, there was helmet contact, but I don't think that was the intent. And Bill Simmons, you know, tweeted that it was intentional and I don't think there was any, any intent whatsoever, um, to, to, to go to his head. Well, that notwithstanding, we've talked and again, maybe we should be giving the NFL credit yes. here. We've talked in the past about in the playoffs, the like, you know, the must win, you know, importance of the game will always take precedent over players else. In this case, it didn't. Gronkowski went out and it wasn't. This was a, a case where in the past he wasn't like falling all over himself. He didn't. He wasn't not no fencing cold. response, not unconscious. And yes, he, he staggered. Didn't come back. He was. He lost his balance. He was clearly brain injured. Um, but this is different. This is not. Right. He didn't come back. But what we don't know is how fucked up he was when he went to the locker room. He may have been exhibiting some really serious symptoms. He may have vomited. He may have been complaining about a serious headache. He may have been delirious. He may have been unable to answer the routine questions that are delivered in a concussion assessment. So, so he may know. have been really fucked up. So I don't want to give too much credit. You know, there's a, there's a line there. If Gronkowski was borderline, like, hey, I want to go back and I want to go back in and he sort of maybe passed the protocol examination, then who knows whether they would have allowed him to return to the game. Seems like a cultural shift. Maybe. If only a slight one. Yeah. We're not, we can't be sure, but it, it seemed that way watching the game. Um, any other Patriots thoughts before we move on to a, a quick Bortles discussion? Um, I, mean, I do think that 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 if we go back a week and 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 look at the the the, the Seth Wickersham story in ESPN and how all of New England seemed to be poo pooing it and trying to knock it down, that there were a couple things to me that validated Seth's reporting here. This One is the was story that. This about- is the story in ESPN about um, whether there was dysfunction among Robert Kraft, the owner, and Bill Belichick and Tom Brady, and whether their long partnership was heading for um, the finish line. Um, Kraft went on the NFL Network and said, everyone has to get their egos in check and get it together. Validating. 
And the second thing that to me seemed to validate it was Brady's physical appearance during this game. I mean, there were moments when he seemed so immobile. There was one sequence when it looked like he was just waiting to get sacked. Yeah. And he ducked once and then he ducked again. He almost seemed disappointed that he didn't that he, get that tackled. he didn't get tackled. Yeah. So I want to I mean, go look, down. He's a 40-year-old man. I don't care how much pliability and how much water the dude is drinking. His <laughs> career is coming to an end soon. I don't think Tom Brady is going to be the quarterback of this team when he's 45. Electrolytes. All right. Let's play um, a clip from The Good Place, which is used Blake Bortles as a, a figure of some mirth. If you haven't watched the show, it's very funny. Mike Schur is the uh, creator, and there's a character, Jason Mendoza, who is from Jacksonville and is the dumb guy on the show, and he loves Blake Bortles. Let's listen to a clip. I just have to run home real quick and hit save on the Madden game I was playing because Blake Bortles has like 300 yards passing in the first step. And you know what the worst part is? He doesn't remember the name of my favorite football player. Definitely not the worst part. It is to me. Blake Bortles is a cool name. Derek Bortles is a dumb name. Blake Bortles, cool. Blake Bortles, dumb. Um, th- we don't we don't have the clip of uh, Jason using the name Jake Jordles as his uh, personal uh, code name, espionage name. Um, the thing about Bortles in this game, so the Jaguars are going to have to make a decision about whether to bring him back. They have a nineteen million dollar option on him for two thousand eighteen. I feel like this game could be the best possible outcome for them because it'll allow them to get rid of Blake Bortles. It was good like, Bortles, bad Bortles. But leave them. It was all of Blake Bortles in one game. But if they made it made it to the Super Bowl, you might be forced to like yeah. make a long-term commitment to, Bla- to Blake Bortles. He looked really good in the first half, looked way less good in the second half. And I think it, it just made me want to like make this point about what what it means to be a bad quarterback. And I think this is kind of obvious, but it's worth stating Everybody who's a starting quarterback in the NFL, except for maybe Nathan Peterman, is really awesome mm-hmm. at football. And it's not that Blake Bortles is incapable of playing well or incapable of being a good quarterback in a you know a few games. Like he was great in December. The issue is lack of consistency. And if you look at his stats over the last few years, he's like consistently been at the very bottom of every kind of advanced stat you can come up with like you know 30th in QBR in 2015 like 28th in QBR in 2016 and i don't think it has to do with him being clutch or not being clutch but i do think the patriots like figured out what they were doing in the first half took it away and then he was not able to like make more difficult throws at the end of the game and the jaguars certainly didn't seem comfortable with letting him try to win the game for him. I'm not and that cost def- them the game. It did. And I'm not going to defend Blake Bortles in the second half, but part of that does fall on the play calling and fall on what the coaches are seeing and what they are instructing him to do. It's not all his doing, though, no, he was not good in the second half and he did not respond in a way that was going to lead them, that didn't leave you with a lot of confidence that he had the ability to go win the game when it was clear the Patriots were going to come All right, this this leads us naturally to the Eagles game where Nick Foles, the backup quarterback, um, you know, when Carson Wentz went out with the ACL injury, um, you know, three quarters of the way through the season, all the headlines said that the Eagles were fucked, basically, although I wouldn't have said that in a headline because you don't put that sort of profanity in a newspaper. 
But, you know, they were the number one seed in the playoffs. They were an underdog in every game. And Foles was amazing. I didn't think that he would be amazing. I don't think most people did. But he threw for three touchdowns. He threw for 352 yards on 26 for 33 uh, passing. And I said it last week. I think a lot of it was that Doug Peterson, the Eagles coach who calls the offensive plays, just did a really, really, really good job of you know creating a scheme to let this guy succeed. But this dude made a bunch of really, really, really fantastic yeah. plays outside the scheme um, on broken plays. He looked unbelievable. I know it was a long time ago, but there was a season yes. in which Nick Foles threw for 27 touchdowns against two interceptions and nearly 3,000 yards. Again, like as you just said, every quarterback in the NFL, even Nathan Peterman, I will go out on a limb and say, is excellent at football, or they wouldn't be on an NFL He did lead the Bills to a touchdown drive in that game where the Saints beat them 5,000 to 7, or whatever the score was. So he is good. Yeah, you're right. Um, It's not like Nick Foles has lost all of the ability to be a good quarterback, and he showed that on Sunday. It does not help when you don't play. Nick Foles is a really good athlete. He's like one of the best at what he does in the world. He had gone downhill, though. I mean, he, he had, had that one really good downhill. He had won that, and that under that Chip season Kelly. was year. an outlier compared to his, you know, the rest of his career stats. Nonetheless, you know, with the right coaching and the right number of repetitions and the right opportunities in games, he demonstrated that he still has the ability to be a very, very good quarterback in the NFL. So, with the Rams in 2015, which was the last time he got really significant playing time before this year. He really was bad. 56% passer, which is not good. Seven touchdowns and 10 interceptions, bad. which is also not good. Passer I mean, the, the the great season that he had with 27 touchdowns and two interceptions, which is an all-time great season, was in 2013. Long time I mean, ago. Right. It, was, it was a while ago. Yeah. And this wasn't just good. This was exceptional. And this was against a defense that was up there with the Jaguars for being the best in the NFL. And the way that they were able to um, – and the other thing was the, the Vikings had historically good third down numbers. Like teams were only converting 25% against them. And the Eagles on third t- down were just unstoppable. Like, like nine third down completions, 10, something like that? It was, it was ridiculous. And some of it was play calling. Some of it was Foles improvising. Some of it was, you know, some combination. Some of it was the Vikings blowing coverages and not playing up to their ability. But it was <laughs> remarkable. And the question is, obviously, um, you know, the Eagles are the biggest Super Bowl underdog um, since 2009, I think. It's like between five and a half and six and a half points we've gotten used to in the last, um, you know, decade or however long to Super Bowls invariably being close, tightly contested games. When I was growing up, that was never the case. This seems like maybe uh, a case where um, there's there's a mismatch, although given how great the Eagles' defense is, um, I'm not sure that the Patriots are going to pile up a huge amount of points. Um, I don't know. What are, you, what are your thoughts? What are you looking forward to? Um, I'm looking forward to the narratives because it's the Super Bowl. I hope Malcolm Jenkins takes a knee. During the during the national anthem at the Super Bowl, he's never done it. <laughs> Maybe now's the time to start. I hope they do something to draw the contrast between the uh, the way these two franchises approached 
Colin Kaepernick and the, the protest. Chris Long is another guy who's yep. uh, been uh, outspoken and was on the Patriots last year. And the Philadelphia-ness of this like Super Bowl run-up is going to be you're you're rolling your eyes. No, I think it's great. Oh, the, it, the greased poles and oh, oh, that part. Yeah. yeah. Oh, I love that stuff. That's going to be great. I think the narrative will get a little bit insufferable. It'll be over the top. We're going to hear a lot about never Santa Claus and, and snowballs, um, and the 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 outrageousness of the fan base. And I think the smart narrative writers are going to latch onto the greased poles and the <laughs> South Philly enthusiasm that's, of that the Eagles fan. Takes base. a lot of intellect to latch onto the greased poles. Well. I think there are a lot of people who've said that like Eagles Patriots is just like the worst of both worlds for a neutral fan just because of the insufferability of both fan bases. Travis Waldron tweeted, Pat's Eagles is the New York Times giving its editorial page to Trump voters of Super Bowls. (laughs) That's dumb. I mean, you have to think about riot potential. And if the Eagles win, it is just absolutely off the charts. There's like no better city in terms of like unleashing mayhem Mm -hmm. it'll be insane what happens in philadelphia if they win the super bowl like so we should root for the eagles to win but for no one to be hurt (laughs) sure good way good good way to end the segment appreciate that apple card is the perfect cash back rewards credit card you earn up to three percent daily cash on every purchase every day that's three percent on your favorite products at apple 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City Branch. Subject to credit approval. Terms apply. Before we get to the Larry Nassar scandal, I wanted to let you know that in our bonus segment for Slate Plus members, Stefan and I will talk about the first week of the Australian Open. It was highlighted by Simona Halep's epic win over Lauren Davis and the improbable rise of a tennis player named Tennis. If you want to get that tennis fix, join Slate Plus for just $35 a year. If you do, you can get bonus segments on this and other Slate podcasts every week. Sign up at slate.com slash hangup plus. By the time their victim impact statements in a Michigan courtroom end this week, upwards of 150 women will have confronted former USA Gymnastics team doctor Lawrence Nasser, who for as long as 30 years exploited his position of authority and trust to sexually abuse young athletes during what they were told were medical treatments. Olympic gold medalist Allie Raceman was one of them. Here's some of her riveting 15-minute testimony last week. To believe in the future of gymnastics is to believe in change. But how are we to believe in change when these organizations aren't even willing to acknowledge the problem? It's easy to put out statements talking about how athlete care is the highest priority. But they've been saying that for years, and all the while this nightmare was happening. False assurances from organizations are dangerous, especially when people want so badly to believe them. They make it easier to look away from the problem and enable bad things to continue to happen. And even now, after all that has happened, USA Gymnastics has the nerve to say the very same things it has said all along. Can't you see how disrespectful that is? Can't you see how much that hurts? Juliet McCurr is a sports columnist for the New York Times. She joins us now. Hey. 
Hi. Thank you for coming on the show, Juliet. Allie Raceman, in her testimony, said that if one adult had stood up a long time ago, Nasser might have been stopped. And that feels to me like the main takeaway here. Sports like gymnastics and swimming in particular, but not only those sports, give male supervisors extraordinary control over and private contact with children. And the organizations that are supposed to regulate that control, as we've seen, have enabled abuse through a lack of oversight. In a column you wrote over the weekend, you called for the U.S. Olympic Committee to decertify the USA Gymnastics Federation. This seems like a starting point. I mean, uh, this is an organization that filed a court motion saying that it had, quote, no legal duty to protect plaintiffs from Nassar's criminal conduct. What would decertifying accomplish and what other steps do you think should be taken here? Yeah, decertifying is sort of what they call the nuclear option. It's sort of the last option for the USOC. But I mean, I can't, I don't know of another case that uh, would warrant it anymore. I mean, hundreds of, of girls and women were abused over many, many years. And basically decertifying would mean bulldozing the whole organization and rebuilding it with people who actually care about the athletes and their well-being. Simone Biles and Allie Raceman, in particular, these are um, gold medal winners. They're celebrities. They're amazing athletes. And importantly, they haven't yet retired from their sport. And I thought it was remarkable that not only did they come forward to talk about their abuse at the hands of Larry Nasser, but you know we heard it from Raceman and Biles wrote it in her statement, just how strongly they've condemned USA Gymnastics. I found that incredibly brave and, and surprising. Um, what did you make of the fact that these um, you know, current athletes who still are kind of under the control of this organization came out so strongly against it? Yeah, in the past, it never would have happened because people, gymnasts and parents, coaches were afraid of USA Gymnastics and the power that the officials there wielded, that the Carolis wielded. People wanted to make the national team and the Olympic team. You have to remember that gymnastics is a subjectively judged sport. So it's not like if you finish one, two, three in, the, in a running race, you're, gonna, you're going to uh, make the Olympic team. They basically choose who they want to, to be on the Olympic team. So in the past, it wouldn't have happened. And I think because of the Me Too movement in almost every single walk of life these days, these women felt empowered to, to use their voices. And look how powerful they were. Simone Biles, the most, one of the most decorated athletes uh, in American Olympic history, came out and said that she was abused and that the Caroli Ranch, where the national team training center have, has been held for almost 20 years, she w was afraid to go back there because she had been abused there by Larry Nassar. And then three days later, it was shut down. That, to me, is one of the most interesting side stories here, and I hope it becomes a main story. Um, there have been multiple civil lawsuits. Michaela Maroney had reached a, a, a one and a quarter million dollar settlement with uh, USA Gymnastics. Michigan State obviously is going to be culpable here. I think the U.S. Olympic Committee could wind up being culpable here. And then there are the Carolis, Bella and Marta Caroli, who have obviously been huge figures, dominant figures in gymnastics for decades now. They had this ranch in Texas, in rural Texas. Um, and if I were one of these parents, 
I'd be suing them. Um, they, they seem to me like co-conspirators here in an effort to cover up and even enable sexual assault. This ranch operated kind of like a cult. If I can interject a little bit, Juliet's being modest, but she called for the ranch to be yeah. closed as well in a very good um, and searing column in the Times before the ranch was closed. And I think that surely had an effect and as well. An impact as well. Absolutely. I mean, but this place, Juliet, I mean, parents were barred from watching practice. They were barred from observing training sessions or attending medical examinations. They were limited in their ability to communicate with their children. Girls were molested there by Nasser, what sounds like hundreds of times. It's a, it's a perfect place for somebody like Larry Nassar to do his, his dirty work. It's in the middle of nowhere in Texas. It's about 60 miles north of Houston. And on my one trip there, uh, going down this rural uh, dirt road to the ranch, a wild boar had crossed right in front of me. So this is how rural this was, in the middle of the Sam Houston National Forest where I arrived and my cell phone didn't work. Cell phone service is spotty to this day there. And this is where these girls were subjected to you know, the harsh co- coaching tactics of the Carolis. Um, they were looking for maybe some emotional support. And there was Larry Nasser. He was there grooming girls as maybe young as um, eight years old with food because they didn't have that much food there. They were often hungry, food and friendship and praise. And that set up a perfect opportunity for him to take advantage of these girls again and again and again. And Nasser took advantage of that dynamic, the sort of good cop, bad cop dynamic at the gym that he worked at in Michigan. Um, And Rebecca Schumann has written for Slate a couple of pieces um, about this culture of gymnastics and how um, just as an elite gymnast, you know, as you said, Juliet, it's a subjective sport, but um, also kind of behind the scenes, you're taught and schooled and like never complaining about an injury or, about, um, you know, marks or about anything. Or about being tired or stressed out or overworked. And that's just how evil Nasser was, is that he presented himself as sort of like an off-ramp or an exit from this like kind of brutal regime, wherever it was, that he could be a sympathetic ear, that he could be somebody who would treat these girls humanely. And just like how kind of, cunning that was to be able to use that against these girls and young women. It is truly, truly evil. It is evil. I mean, he was, uh, he was obviously brilliant at being evil and picked the perfect opportunity to, to take advantage of these girls. And it took so long for somebody to, to recognize this, that maybe it's a bad idea for, to have one national team doctor for all this time. Nobody else overseeing him, nobody else in the room while he's doing these supposed, supposedly legitimate medical um, procedures, which obviously are not legitimate at all. Nobody being able to call their mom to, or dad to tell them, tell them about it. And really, some of the girls actually did tell their parents, and nobody believed them. So this is a messed up culture. It has to stop now. But USA Gymnastics has got to like I said in my column last week, it's got to be bulldozed, blown up, whatever you have to do with it. People have to be put in by the USOC who really pay attention to the sexual abuse problems with the sport. People who care about the girls and, and really the men and the boys and the women first before they care about medals and money. 
And that's the problem. That's the problem with this sport is they care about winning more than they care about people. They care about sponsors. They care about their extremely well-paid positions at these federations. And beyond that, Juliet, I think, I think that there's a lesson for other sports here, too. I mean, we have this culture in America and in other countries, this sports industrial complex, and it starts with local recreational leagues and it goes up to Olympic training centers where parents, in effect, are brainwashed into believing that it is not only essential, but it is necessary for their children's athletic success that they, the parents, relinquish control over their child. Um, you know, the extreme is sending your kid to a ranch in the middle of nowhere in a forest in Texas. Um, but there are a lot more mild um, examples of, of the way children are treated uh, in, in the pursuit of, 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 of greatness in sports. And I think that, you know, is one ancillary takeaway that, that all sports should be looking at from, from what's happening in gymnastics. You know, I don't think this is a problem that's just in gymnastics or swimming or the bigger sports. I think that every single youth sport yep. and elite sport in America has this problem. Maybe not as big as Larry Nassar, which is arguably the biggest sex abuse scandal in sports history. I think this is a problem on every single level. And I have a six-year-old daughter who's involved in youth sports. And I, I see, <laughs> you know, I'm, a, I'm an exceptional parent when it comes to watching over what these kids are doing because I've seen what happens when people are too crazy, parents are too crazy in youth sports. But I see other parents pushing their kids and yelling at their kids, making their kids look at sports as not a fun thing. And that's where it starts is where parents are blinded by what sports can provide, whether it's a scholarship or Olympic greatness or something. And this happens when kids are just five or six years old and it, it blossoms into putting kids into the hands of coaches and turning the other way. So I, I think it starts really young. And I think hopefully this case, if there's a takeaway from it, as parents pay attention to, to who's watching over their children. Michigan state also is, um, you know, an aspect of the scandal that we should get into the obvious analogy is uh, Penn State and Jerry Sandusky. Nasser was a trainer at Michigan State, not just with gymnastics. Um, he oversaw other sports as well. And there are a bunch of really disturbing reports about various people at Michigan State and the leadership of the school in various positions being told um, about uh, allegations that he was sexually abusing his, his patients at various times, there are now calls on um, you know, the school to oust Luanna Simon, who's the president. I don't know if either of you guys, Stefan, um, have thought about the analogy with Penn State and kind of where it makes sense and where it doesn't. I think it absolutely makes sense. Um, this was someone in a position of authority over athletes. And Sandusky obviously was in a position of authority. He wasn't abusing the athletes at the school. He was abusing children. Um, but, but these are people that were given authority over youth athletes and who are representing the university. And I think absolutely that when you, you talk about culpability, financial and otherwise, um, MSU should be held accountable. Absolutely. I mean, as we know, they, they knew about allegations of, of Nasser's sexual abuse for years and a title nine case filed, uh, that. People basically said, yeah. right, and Larry Nasser would never do that. Why would he's such a good guy? And other doctors stepped up and said he was a good guy. And people said, this is impossible. And so uh, 
So there, somebody who st- stepped forward to say that, that Larry Nassar abused her, they weren't believed, and this is where we are now. So MSU has got, you know, if, if you're comparing it to Penn State, it's, it's many, many, many times worse. And look what happened to the people at Penn State. Well, people went to jail, and I think, you know, that was a function of state law, and we'll have to see how it plays out. Um, in Michigan, um, I feel like, you know, it could it could go a bunch of, of different ways, and we'll have to wait and see yeah. well, I think what happens. There are clearly a lot of people implicated. The Detroit News had a story the other day that identified at least 14 Michigan State staffers and representatives who became aware at, at different points about complaints about Nasser abusing uh, athletes for more than two decades. Um, I think the, the, you know, the, the board of trustees have, have supported the president. There was one dissenter who's come out and, 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 and called for Luanna Simon to, to resign. The state attorney general apparently has been asked to review how much of this ends up getting whitewashed and covered up in, in the guise of sort of state bureaucracy remains to be seen. But I think the pressure on Michigan State. And I wonder whether, Juliet, the pressure from the NCAA is going gonna, is gonna to play a role here, too, and whether there will be any. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I haven't heard anything from the NCAA about this case. You know, MSU, I can't even begin to describe how culpable they are on various levels, how many people saw, heard these allegations and didn't do a thing. And like I said before, look what happened at Penn State. People talked about that. They're still talking about that for years and years, about about the impact, about how terrible it was. I mean, it, this and the number of victims in this case is is many, many more, dozens and dozens and dozens more, more. And I'm not sure why this case isn't taken as seriously as Penn State, which is what I kind of consider it to be. But um, I think that whatever happens with MSU, it's it's not going to be harsh enough. Juliet, you wrote about the Nasser case back in 2016. Um, the Indianapolis Star um, broke the story Around that time, Rachel Den Hollander came out was the first victim um, to come out and, and really allowed other people to uh, follow in her footsteps. But um, you know, I think we can all agree that this story, until this past week, really didn't get the same coverage as Penn State did. Didn't get the same amount of coverage as Harvey Weinstein and, and other figures and, and Me Too did. Um, you know, we're we're all sitting here today. And saying, you know, it seems worse than Penn State in a lot of different ways. Um, so I'm not saying, Juliet, obviously, you know, you wrote about this back then. But why do you think it took until now for all of us to kind of realize what it was that we were dealing with? Yeah, that's a million dollar question. Why, this should have been on the front page of every single newspaper throughout the last few years, but it wasn't. And I've got this question from many different people before is, is, is this because these are little girls and do people care about little girls less than they care about the little boys who were hurt in the Penn state case? You know, obviously I can't answer that question, but, but this case is, is, is bigger than Penn state and it's more far reaching. You know, it's not only was Nasser at MSU, he was the national team doctor for USA gymnastics for more than 20 years. He abused girls all over the world at four Olympics at the Caroli Ranch, back at MSU, he abused girls in many different sports, and w- girls and women in many different sports, and girls as young as um, eight eight years old, maybe even younger. It's it's pretty amazing to think that 
this wasn't something that people have been talking about for years and years now, but at least here we are talking only when, what is it, more than 150 women have come forward to, to let us hear their victim impact statements. Only now are people really realizing this, how, you know, how grave this problem is. Juliet McCurr is a sports columnist for the New York Times. Juliet, thank you so much for joining us. You're welcome. I just want to note that after we recorded our conversation with Juliet McCurr, USA Gymnastics announced that three members of its board of directors, including the chairman, had resigned. No other management changes were announced. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Last week, Dave McKenna wrote a piece in Deadspin that began, Gary Mays, who should have been really famous, died Monday night. He was 82. By the time you get to the end of Dave's obituary for Gary Mays, I'm pretty sure you'll agree. Mays, whose left arm was amputated after an accidental shotgun blast in 1940, was a Washington, D.C. sports legend. He hit 375 as a high school baseball player. Defensively, he played catcher, throwing out base dealers, Dave writes, by tossing the ball up as he got out of his crouch, flipping his glove off and catching the ball in mid-throw. He was most famous for what he did on the basketball court, shutting down Elgin Baylor in the 1954 city championships. His secret, he said, was that Elgin didn't like my nub, so I kept rubbing it against him. Joining us now to discuss Gary Mays, who was known during his playing days as the one-armed bandit, is Dave McKenna. He wrote about Mays for Deadspin last week and previously documented Gary Mays' exploits for the Washington City Paper. Dave McKenna, thank you for being here. Great to be here to talk about the great Gary Mays. Gary Mays, you know, we've uh, known each other for a while, and you've been telling me Gary Mays stories since uh, I knew you, and I always enjoyed uh, hearing them. Uh, do you remember when you first heard about the man, the myth, the legend, Gary Mays? Well, I, I used to write, uh, as you said, about for City, Washington City Paper, and, and I had a sports column, and I focused exclusively on local stuff. And I thought you were going to say I focused exclusively on Gary Mays. Well, there, there is that you could make that argument if you look at the archives. I, I, I would have if, if I would have been allowed to get away with it, because I'd never heard anything so amazing. Elgin Baylor is is uh, an uh, underheralded and almost unheralded uh, figure in DC sports history, and. Um, Gary Mays, whenever I talked to the older uh, African-American population in D.C., where I got about 90 percent of my stories from, uh, Gary Mays would come up eventually because he was he was such a star in this heyday of playground sports and sandlot sports in D.C. in in the late uh, the mid 50s, early 50s because of race issues because the high school sports never got any attention. Uh, the, the black, there was, it, was a, it was a legally segregated city at the time, uh, all black, all white schools, and uh, only the white schools were treated as, as even existing by the sports pages of the Washington Post and, and various newspapers. There's only one newspaper 
out of the four, I believe, dailies that gave the uh, Division Two. they called the, the colored schools, uh, any, any ink. And uh, Elgin Baylor was a god because uh, in, in the black community and unknown in the, unknown in the white community. And So even Elgin Baylor wasn't written about no, um, in the post? He, he was not. Uh, like he, he broke the all-time city scoring record and it got one paragraph. Uh, in 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 a, a late story, and, and this is at a time when when high school sports w- were dominant in in DC sports. There was the Redskins and uh, and high school sports. I mean, they would sell fifty five thousand seats by in nineteen sixty two to a, a high school football game. The, the biggest sports events in the city's history were high school events, uh, and uh, so Gary Mays would come up. He was kind of linked at the hip, so to speak, with, with Elgin because of this 1954 when Elgin was at the height of his uh, goddom or whatever, uh, uh, he shut him down in the city playoffs which in 1954, which ended up being the last segregated um, city championship tournament because uh, Brown versus Board of Education came two months later. Um, I'm going to let Stefan jump in here, but one last thing before, before that. When you heard um, these stories about – Gary Mays, did you believe them? Well, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I mean, I wanted to believe them so bad, and and I heard them. They were so they were so prevalent. Like, how long were you hearing about Gary Mays before you met him? I probably had the column like four years, and so probably about here and there for four years, and and I couldn't find him in the DC phone. <laughs> this is before the internet really had it was a, you know except for military purposes or something, and uh, uh, I couldn't find him. And then I finally looked in the phone book, the local phone books, and found him in in Maryland. <laughs> and then uh, we've we've been friends ever since. Um, I want to talk about his high school exploits. Um, let's talk about that game, the city championship against Elgin Baylor in 1954. First of all, how did Gary Mays play basketball one handed? And I mean, do you have a sense? Do you have an image? There's no video, I imagine, that survived from from these from this era. There, there, there's no video that I'm more. Of, although Gary said that he was filmed for a a uh, movie reel, one of those pre-screen movie reels, yeah. ones that he never got movies, to see. Yeah. That he never got to see, but he had heard. He thinks it really is out there somewhere because someone told him they saw it once, and he remembers being filmed. And he was a, a, like kind of a, a national. Like he he got national press in the African American press in, in Ebony and Jet magazine. They wrote right. about his exploits in high school. Um, but how like. He, he played every sport. He was a lifeguard. Right. He had one arm. He, 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 he was a high jumper. I mean, he did, he did everything. He was, he was the best at, at every, everything he did. He just um, – he, he, like his, his excuse, and it was in the story, like his, his rationale for his, his, his drive was that no one would ever pick him on the playground until he beat them, so he had to beat them. And, and he spent – he had – his family life was very dysfunctional. So he grew up on the playgrounds and couch, couch surfing, you know, among other black athletes. I, don't he, he, I was going to say that, you know, we talked about the basketball is what we've talked about. But you write and others have written that he might have been even better at baseball. And he didn't just play baseball. He wasn't a pitcher. It wasn't a Jim Abbott situation. He caught. He caught. Yeah, and which, batted like 375 in high school. He won MVP of, of the, the Daily News uh, tryout camp that they had every year. Was back, they would have an annual tryout. For, for the Washington Senators. Washington Griffith. It was for the major leagues, but it was, yes, sponsored by, at Griffith Stadium by, by Mr. Griffith, who owned the Washington Senators. Um, and he uh, – out of that camp, uh, Chuck Hinton was there. It was, it, was a, it was an integrated camp, which was – you know, integrated sporting events were very rare at the time but in D.C. But he uh, – Chuck Hinton got a major league deal out of that camp. So it, it wasn't – you know, it was no sl- fake camp or anything. It wasn't just for, 
for show. Um, and Gary got MVP. He's the only guy in the camp to hit a home run. And uh, you know, again, there's a major league stadium with one arm against the best the city had to offer at a time when baseball was very, very big. So um, he, he, I mean, I, I would have, I have not seen video. I've seen, there was a, a profile in, in, um, Ebony magazine where they – or was it Jet? One of the two uh, – where they did a photo spread showing his form uh, where he, him jumping out, throwing the glove down, jumping out and catching the ball and throwing it, you know, with just in, – in his time sequence photos. And uh, – but I have I, – I, I know a ton of people – uh, from my old days at City Paper, in the, in the, uh, of a certain vintage of, in, in the African American com- community, and they all speak about Gary uh, with awe. About you know, once you saw him play, you know, you never forgot him. I don't know if either of you guys have seen. There was a guy who played at Florida briefly, Zach Hodgkins, who had right. one arm, a basketball right. player. And you ask like how it's done. Watch a video of this guy, Zach Hodgkins, play. I mean, he <laughs> certainly cannot. <laughs> Go, go left as well as he can go right, but it's doable. And there's like a tradition or history of one-armed baseball players too. You mentioned Jim Abbott. There's also Pete Gray, who mm-hmm. I read about in my like amazing sports feats when I was a kid who played during World War II. And basketball, de- de- defense is heart, isn't it? You know, and, and he, he Gary had more heart than anybody. So tell us about um, meeting Gary Mays. Um, you'd heard about this guy for years, right? You like aren't you? You say you claim that you believe that everything about him was true, but after you met him, I'm imagining based on your experience with him, you're like absolutely convinced that everything is true. And and, and, and did the story stop at high school? They didn't, right? Uh, athletically, well, there is there is one more that the, the, I'll go first to my, to my meeting, and then remind me because there is one one thing about about his college that I really would like to say. But uh, the uh, when I met him, yeah, I had heard all these stories about the one arm bandit and you know a, a guy with one arm who could do it way more than anyone with two arms. Um, and he shows up, but like again, I was I was uh, way more excited to meet him than he was. I mean, he didn't know, know who I was, obviously. Go figure. Go figure. <laughs> And this guy, he pulls up, he calls I've been him. hearing about this guy who's been writing for the city paper for years, but I, I didn't think I'd ever get to meet him. And, and he, he shows up and he, uh, you know, I told him I, I, I'd been here. I, you know, I gushed on the phone and then he said, well, let's go to lunch. And so he, call, he picked, you know, honk on the horn. I hear a horn outside. I go outside and there's a guy who's on his phone, on his cell phone, drinking a soda and and ostensibly, you know, he's in the driver's seat. And he, and so I get in the car and he gets off his phone for a second and says, you know, put on your seatbelt. And I, I laughed at, at the, the, you know, because he's, he's triple tasking with one <laughs> arm. And, uh, uh, and, and so, yeah, and, so, and after that, that was the beginning of a long, he was a wonderful guy. He had incredible spirit, just happy as hell. And I love the story, like right around the time I had met him, uh, he was living in Maryland, Fort Washington, Maryland, and Maryland had had he, he had a, he had a paperwork where Maryland had offered him a prosthetic uh, left arm <laughs> after after fifty years without one, and he uh, sixty years without one, and he got a big charge out of that. Did he talk about the the, the sort of the the double whammy that his life dealt him, both this this disability to overcome and excel at sports, and also competing in a time of segregation that probably robbed him of the opportunity to do more with his talent? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I think it was different maybe later in life, but, it, 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 you know, it, 
he was more living in the moment. Like he, it, it wasn't as if he, he chose to live with, with one arm or chose to live in, in, as a black man in a very segregated or a black kid at a segregated time where you couldn't even go to parks like Elgin Baylor, the park across the street from Elgin Baylor, which always had nets. Uh, he, it was, he was banned from playing there. And then that was – so that became their after-hours park. Um, uh, so I don't think he – I mean he, 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 he just he, – he played the hand that he was dealt and he played it well. Yeah, it doesn't sound like a man that sort of lived with regret about happiest happiest guy ever. I mean, he understood if you know because jerks like me would press him to say, say something yeah. negative. Right. <laughs> but, Give me uh, a quote, Gary. <laughs> Gary, talk about race. Can you believe they treated you this way? No, he he didn't. He just was a Mister Positive and happy guy. And you talk to anyone who met him, he just was a, he just was great. I mean, my kids got got to know him through the years, and he just always brought toys to him. He's just a great damn guy, and I, I miss him. I'm going to miss him bad. You said you wanted to circle back to something. Oh, about, was it at College of Idaho? About college, or? yes. Because he, yeah, he the, like the, the the road to college, you know, in D.C. This again, the segregation thing. It, it, it's it's for a white guy like me who just uh, you know experiencing all these things uh, decades later uh, for anecdotal purposes, just to t- try to retell the story. I mean, it, it's it's a magical tale of, of 1954 when these guys who were gods in 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 their neighborhoods and unknown elsewhere at a time when you know college basketball was very big in this country and dc as it, w- it took a few years uh, to learn was was the hotbed dc was had more talent per capita than any spot on earth and uh and gary you know, was 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 part of of that and so in 1954 like elgin baylor this guy who again a god uh doesn't get recruited by anybody like some small school in, in southern virginia none of the local schools um and this is the same playgrounds kelly miller playground where john thompson and dave bing uh event you know Grew up in, uh, and you ask them, and, and you know it's all it all goes back to the Baylor year, and uh, uh, so. But these guys who are everyone knows they're great, who sees them play, and then sees the outside world ignoring them. I mean, I'm sure that messes with your worldview horribly. And then, and so Baylor ends up going to College of Idaho only because a guy Warren Williams, a third player, who uh, ended up founding DC. DC Lottery. Years later, he ran. He ran a numbers. He was a tough guy. He ran a numbers racket here, and found a DC Lottery. But anyway, Warren Williams had his his neighbor. That's uh, a great story. What good experience? Perfect experience yeah. to, to start the DC Lottery. His neighbor uh, uh, had a, a relative who played for the Globetrotters and was visiting, and you know, Warren, and said, "Warren, hey, I, I know the coach at, at in Idaho. They had been out to Idaho, and he said." I'd met him and they, they need people. Try them. And so Warren goes out to, you know, he, he gets an offer and he goes, I got some friends in D.C. who are, you know, and just thinking this all white campus, all white town. He's thinking, you know, we could whoop their ass, I'm sure. And uh, so Elgin it, it goes out there and uh, Elgin and, 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 and uh, Warren went out early and then they, they called. They say, we got this other guy, Gary. And then so they bring Gary out and they came home. And they were like the train ride out from Chicago. It's like this Gary had been – he was born in West Virginia, moved here as a kid and never really been anywhere. And Elgin Baylor was, had, was totally D.C. And Warren Williams, these three D.C. kids living in this segregated uh, – totally segregated life. Like getting on a train to go to Idaho – to, to just this to, – to a trip that really opened the world. I mean that opened the world to, to D.C. as a recruiting hotbed. There was nothing. No one was recruited in D.C. before that. And I, I always like kind of 
again, for storytelling purposes, like what a movie that would be. These three guys, they, they literally, it, I mean, you know, this is, this sounds crazy, you know, <laughs> a little overboard, but it really did. It changed the sports world. Elgin Baylor went on to, uh, after Idaho went 15-0 that, that year, their, their one year together, and the, the school broke up the program because they didn't like the Sports Illustrator wrote about them admitting uh, on, on guys with ignoring grade yeah. requirements and admitting them. And then so the school disbands this under, the team that went undefeated for the first time in school history in, in, in conference play. And so Baylor then goes to college, the, the Seattle, uh, College of Seattle, uh, or Seattle University, excuse me, and takes them single-handedly to the Final Four against, it, it plays uh, Kentucky. And that, people go, where's this guy from? And then Baylor's telling people, you got to come come back. You know, you got to look where I'm at Kelly Miller Playgrounds. So, uh, you got to come back to look at D.C. And that opens D.C. And literally changed changed the basketball. But Gary, did, Gary Gary didn't get that opportunity to go to a big school and keep playing basketball. Though he did not. He he did not play for for Seattle. Uh, he he did not get the offer like that, that Baylor did. It, it, which is um, they they did offer other Baylor's teammates at Spingarn. and other guys did get called out. <laughs> they Spingarn were on the high school. Spingarn high school. I'm sorry. Yes, Baylor went to Spingarn high school. Gary went to Armstrong. Um, that they, they did um, get an offer, uh, other Spingarn guys, but you know Gary did not, and he says he was homesick, and he got an offer instead to play for the Globetrotters, um, and uh, he he said he was homesick and, and turned it down, and, and that's another thing about Gary. When I first met him, that when he had all these stories, Josh asked me if did I believe these stories, and I, I really never had a chance to disbelieve them because. As I met him, he brought along this four-inch thick binder, five-inch <laughs> thick binder of his of his clippings that he had saved from day one. And uh, uh, so I guess that that does say that he he realized he was underheralded. I guess. I mean, do, does everyone? Maybe everyone keeps a scrapbook, but his scrapbook was a lot better than my scrapbook. We gotta figure out what's going to happen to that scrapbook, McKenna. Does he have uh, kids or family that he are going to? Yes. Keep the legacy alive. I hope so. They're, they're trying to put a book out now, like a self-publishing thing. Like I just saw a, a GoFundMe uh, for that, uh, a mention of that. I mean, I, I don't really know anything about that project. But, um, uh, God, he, you know, I hope I, there, there should be something. He, this, the funeral is this weekend, and, and they, they just moved it to a big church. Um, so I think it's going to be maybe, you know, one of the last gatherings of, 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 of segregated uh, – Athletes uh, from Washington, D.C., a, a really a glorious era in the city's athletic history. All right. So we got to get that movie made. Elgin Baylor goes west. We got to find that newsreel footage of Gary Mays. If anybody has that footage, send it to Dave McKenna. Well, how do, how do we uh, get in touch with you? I'm in the phone book. <laughs> <laughs> Dave McKenna writes for Deadspin. Used to write for City Paper, The Chronicler of the great Gary Mays. Thank you so much for coming in. It's a pleasure. Thanks, guys. Can you set the stage a little bit so people understand what happened? In 1969, 14 black student athletes were kicked off their university's American football team for planning a show of support against racism. We were really protesting our treatment on the field. Amazing Sports Stories from the BBC World Service tells their story. We became brothers that day when he did that to us. We made a change. Fighting for what we deserve. Search for Amazing Sports Stories wherever you get your BBC podcasts. Oh, 
Now it is time for after balls, and I was just looking up one-armed baseball players. Stefan, you got Jim Abbott, mm-hmm. obviously pitched for the Angels, Yankees, White Sox, pitched a no hitter, and Brewers. Um, but there are kids like coming up now. There's a uh, uh, Graydon Lucas. You've got your Luke Terry. There, there are a bunch of in the kids. minors. No, no, these are like high school, high school players kids? who. This one is about a college-bound uh, player named Josh Stevens, who was uh, 6'3", 225, with one arm, uh, had 5 and one record, 37 strikeouts, and 3.23 ERA, and 56 in the third innings as a high school pitcher. Um, but I mentioned Pete Gray in the uh, segment we just did with Dave McKenna, and he was a part of the you know famed Bill Vec, St. Louis Browns, retinue. And I didn't realize until just realizing it now that his teammates really didn't like him because they thought he was just brought in as a sideshow, as taking playing time away from other players. He played for the Browns for one season in 1945. This was a World War II era thing. Um, And he had 218 uh, in 77 games for the Browns. Um, And, you know, he said about his teammates – if they insulted me, I didn't pay attention. I mostly kept to myself. That's why I got the reputation of being tough to get along with. But I've mellowed, he said later. So let us remember the mellow Pete Gray. Stefan, what is your Pete Gray? Well, this is the big week for Yeovletown FC, Josh. The Yeovletown is the fourth-tier English football club that has advanced to the fourth round of the FA Cup. On Friday, the Glovers, the lowest-ranked team left in the competition, will host none other than Manchester United. A couple of weeks ago in this space, Josh, I announced Yeovil's passage by playing a bit from the 2004 pop hit Yeovil True, which was recorded during an earlier FA Cup run. To get us back in the spirit, let's listen to a little bit of uh, Yeovil True. In my heart, I am always Yeovil. I belong to the Yeovil town. The song tells the story of a Yeovil supporter from his birth. I was born on a Yeovil Saturday. It was pissing down with rain. My mom said, what a big head. Ain't doing that again. The song is 90 years long. Through his wedding day and the birth of his own son, it really is a touching ballad about life in Yeovil town. But I don't see any sign that it has been revived for the Manchester United game. Mm which seems a shame, Mm. but I did find a YouTube video of a guy delivering the best man speech at his buddy's wedding in 2011. Yeovil is a town of 45,000 in the way south of England. It was once, as its nickname indicates, the center of the glove-making industry. It is the birthplace of one of the founders with Roger Williams, of the settlement of Providence, Rhode Island. And it's inspired at least a couple of other songs, 
including this by the very, very, very 1980s band, The Chesterfields, called Last Train to Yeovil. Another band, Show of Hands, wrote a song called Yeovil Town about the night the group was eating in a chip shop after playing a gig in town and were accosted by a drunk, angry dude with Spider-Man tattooed on his head who wanted to fight. But back to football. Yeovil Town FC was founded in 1895, needed 108 years to get into the football league, which consists of the top four leagues in England. But it's not been a great season. After losing on Saturday at home on an extra time goal to Chesterfield... Chesterfields. The Glovers sit just two points above the relegation zone. So the Manchester United game is a huge deal. The teams have some nice connections. When his playing career was ended by a car crash, Yeovil's current manager, Darren Way, got a call from Manchester United coaching legend Alex Ferguson, who sent his team to Yeovil to play a fundraiser match for Way. Yeovil's current star player, Otis Kahn, played for Manchester United's Youth Academy and said that playing the Red Devils would be perfect. The only problem? Kahn got a red card for barging into the referee after the losing goal against Chesterfield, so he is suspended for the Manchester United match. Tickets are going fast at Hewish Park Stadium. It seats 9,500 people. Just in case you're going to be one of the lucky few who get to attend the game... You're going, right, Josh? Thumbs up. Yes. Yes. I checked TripAdvisor for some reviews of the stadium. Definitely a mixed bag. Dirty, messy, not a nice ground to go to. Expensive. Totally, with one L, lack of respect to children, groused. Simon Lisa Six of Somerset. Eve Maggie of Exeter said, staff were polite and helpful, but the food out of everything before kickoff, obviously then went and got some more supplies and then sold out again, announcing to the ever-growing queues, sorry, only got three burgers left. The toilets have no running hot water to wash your hands. The snack bar is a mess and with nothing to offer but a hot dog or pasty. Everything is overpriced too, added Lloyd B. And Town End for Life said, it's clean enough as away ends go, but the stench of dirty grease heating up is horrendous. But I am going to choose instead to listen to the polar opposite reviews on TripAdvisor because you are always guaranteed polar opposite reviews on TripAdvisor. Hewish is a decent little ground, good away day, lovely little ground, cheap tickets, great atmosphere, very civilized, no bad language or rowdiness. Yeovil true through and through, Josh. Josh, what's your Pete Gray? During the AFC and NFC title games on Sunday, ESPN had some very strong counter-programming. First up was Latin American Amateur Golf. Jaime Lopez Rivarola of Argentina has a one-shot lead after two rounds, FYI. After that was a replay of the Harlem Globetrotters Hoops for the Troops game at Joint Base Pearl Harbor Hickam. Thanks to the magic of DVR, I was able to watch the pigskin fly through the air and also enjoy the first-ever underwater magic circle ball handling routine conducted on the USS Santa Fe submarine. If you haven't seen the Globetrotters in a while, you'll likely be intrigued by the fact that they added a four-point line to their games in 2016. 
In the game, I saw a fellow named Cheese Chisholm made four 30-footers in a row for 16 points. Globetrotters are good at basketball. Go back and listen to our conundrum last week. Would you rather be on the Globetrotters and make four 30-footers in a row? It's, it was enticing. It was enticing. It was, a, it was a good moment. They also recruited Gary Mays, which uh, is a feather in their cap. Um, with this new wrinkle in place, the four-pointer, you will be comforted to learn that the Trotters' opponent is still the Washington Generals. But that actually wasn't the case um, for a little bit. The Generals' longtime impresario, Red Klotz, who lost more than 14,000 games as the coach of the uh, perpetually hapless Generals, he died in 2014 and the team disbanded, but the generals reconstituted themselves in 2017 with TNT's Kenny Smith becoming the team's honorary general manager. Uh, the generals took the court in the winner-take-all basketball tournament, the TBT, in 2017. They played very respectably in a 76-72 first-round loss. It was a loss, though. In the hoops for the troops game, uh, they not very shockingly were not trying to win. How can you keep falling for the wacky Globetrotters dribbling antics? People. How can you not fall for them? You've had years, years to get get used to the playbook. I was surprised to learn, though, that they actually had a gimmick of their own, the Generals. A seven-foot-eight player known only as Cager, who wears a black kind of not quite Zorro, not quite like Undertaker sort of mask. Uh, the General's website describes him as an intimidating force with a game that the Globetrotters have never faced and quotes the mononymic cager as saying, I don't like the way the Globetrotters are always joking around and laughing on the court. I like this guy's attitude. Basketball is serious business, he says. I was going to say, he's all business. I'm ready to release the beast, he continues, and show how basketball is supposed to be played. I'm going to wreck some rims and wreck some dreams, exclamation point. You tell him, Cager. Although it was surprisingly hard to find Cager's real identity on the internet. They're trying to keep it on the low. It turns out the guy's name is Paul Sturgis. He's a 30-year-old from England who's reportedly the tallest pro basketball player in the world. Sturgis played college ball at Florida Tech and Mountain State, both of which sound like fake schools in a sitcom about basketball. He then played in the D-League briefly, the NBA's minor league. He averaged 0.8 points per game for the Texas Legends. Um, But here's what the zany hoops powers the B do not want you to know, Stefan. The man now known as Cager, an intimidating force with a game the Globetrotters have never faced, played for the Globetrotters as Tiny from 2011 to 2013, pioneering the no jump dunk. You can watch it on YouTube. A Globetrotter and a general... Is there any loyalty anymore in the world of professional sports? Sturgis was profiled on the public radio show Only a Game a few years ago. Um, It was in 2014. He was still trying to make it to the NBA. That piece noted that most of the value he provided to his D-League team came um, from a marketing perspective. Children enjoyed following him around and taking pictures. I have to say that camera phones are my worst nightmare, Sturgis said. People think they're so slick sneaking pictures and stuff like that. I kind of notice it all the time. But I mean, I'm not going to lie. If I was short and I saw someone like me, I'd probably do the same thing. Self-aware, Cager. That is our show for today. Our producer is Patrick Fort. To listen to past shows and subscribe or just reach out, go to slate.com slash hangup. You can email us at hangup at slate.com. This week, I would like to endorse the Trumpcast show. It is a quasi-daily podcast. It sets out to understand the real Donald Trump. 
Jacob Weisberg, the chairman of Slate, along with writer Virginia Heffernan and Slate chief political correspondent Jamel Bowie, talk to historians and psychiatrists and other experts to help explain who this man is and why this is happening right now in the United States. You can listen and subscribe at slate.com slash Trumpcast. For Stefan Fatsis, I'm Josh Levine. Remember Gary Mays and Zelma Bay. And thanks for listening. Mixed up in the family business. Introducing The Godfather at ChompaCasino.com. Test your luck in the shadowy world of The Godfather slot. Someday, I will call upon you to do a service for me. Play The Godfather now at ChompaCasino.com. Welcome to the family. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.